On August 25, 1944, after six days of fighting, following four years of Nazi occupation, in which an estimated 120,000 citizens had been tortured and killed, the French 2nd Armored Division and the U.S. 4th Infantry Division rolled through the streets of Paris amid the raucous cheers of the Parisians who long had awaited their day of liberation. And a scene is recorded by an American wartime correspondent who wrote, as we reached the outskirts of the city, in the area of the Port d'Orléans, we became aware of a strange noise somewhere ahead of us. A low murmur at first, it gathered momentum and built into a gigantic roar of hysterical joy. It was as if in the bottom of the ninth, in the seventh game of the World Series, Babe Ruth had smashed the winning homer over the center field wall in Yankee Stadium. Only it was louder and wilder, hurled from all directions, echoing off buildings, rattling windows, deafening eardrums. And then there burst upon us a wall of humanity. I remember its being mostly female and young, yelling, screaming, waving, cheering, clambering up the sides of the trucks, kissing us, pressing flowers, and wine on us. What took place in Paris on that August day was a mighty parade, a celebration anyone would want to be part of, a picture of a triumphal procession, if ever there was one. And if that is your impression of a parade, and why wouldn't it be, we see them as festive occasions, don't we? Associated with and calling attention to positive events. If that is your impression of a parade, then there's a very good chance in your reading this past week in 2 Corinthians or in listening to the scripture that Steve just read to you, 2 Corinthians 2.14, you might have thought that it meant something that it doesn't mean at all. As we come to our passage this morning, its author is the Apostle Paul, and he's under fire from his opponents, people that he refers to as false apostles and deceitful workmen. And like what has happened to uh, Jesus, Paul's preaching of the truth has inspired regular criticism and relentless attacks. And that wasn't a shock to Paul. That did not catch him by surprise. Nor should it ever be a surprise to us, should in our preaching and witnessing to the gospel we experience anything similar to that, because Jesus said, if this world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, he said, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And some in Corinth were hating on Paul. By worldly standards, he was not always impressive. He wasn't always victorious or influential. At times, Paul came across as weak and ineffectual. And one of the arguments that they raised to call into question the legitimacy of his apostleship was that he suffered too much. Wouldn't a true man of God meet with more success? Wouldn't a true servant of God have less heartache in this world? Wouldn't someone chosen by God have a smoother time of it, experience less tribulation? This guy, when you look at his life, is a shipwreck. At least that's how the argument went. And that's the backdrop of Paul's response in 2 Corinthians 2, where he doesn't deny, doesn't minimize, doesn't repudiate his suffering for God's sake, but instead he exalts in it and says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him 
everywhere. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Scott Hafferman gives us the background on the Roman triumphal procession that Paul's alludes to, the procession that his first readers would have recognized right away, but you and I probably not so much. He writes, the triumphal procession was a lavish parade conducted in Rome to celebrate great victories and significant military campaigns. Like a St. Patrick's Day parade in Chicago, these were major cultural and civic events. Everybody in the Roman Empire knew about these parades, which were represented on Roman arches, reliefs, coins, statues, medallions, paintings, and cameos, not to mention the approximately 350 triumphs that are recorded in ancient literature. They were ostentatious celebrations filled with valiant soldiers, the spoils of war, and the most theatrical pomp and circumstances Rome could muster. Moreover, the triumphal procession demonstrates Rome's prowess as the victor, not only by parading the spoils of war, but also by leading in triumph the most important leaders and intimidating warriors of the enemy now presented as conquered slaves. The highest honor any Roman Caesar or general could receive would be to lead one of these parades. Conversely, to be led as a prisoner in such a triumphal procession signaled one's utter defeat. The role of those led in triumph was to reveal the glory of the one who had conquered them, ultimately through their public execution and death. When Paul gives thanks to God who's leading him in triumphal procession, then he's not saying that he's marching in a victory parade of any sorts. Jesus is not the grand marshal. Paul's not a gleeful baton twirler. He's being led, as it were, like a prisoner by God to his death. This most certainly is not, as we might have previously thought, a picture of onward Christian soldiers. Do you know that hymn? Do you remember that hymn? I used to love that hymn when I was a kid. It was one of the only fast hymns we ever sang. But this is not, this is not an early version of onward Christian soldiers where Christ is the royal master leading against the foe and the saints are hoisting the cross of Jesus and they move like a mighty army in a happy throng. Paul and his fellow ministers are not the conquerors here. They are the conquered ones. He and his fellow ministers are not leading the captives. They are the captives. And grasping this reality is going to help us get a truer picture of what the Christian life is and what serving Jesus is is about suffering and hardship and affliction these are not things that disprove our position in christ but they testify to it father your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path your word is the way and it shows us the way so holy spirit we ask that you might help us grasp what you intend by the scripture that we're hearing today and we ask it in jesus name amen Ben, is the, ben, are the monitors on? Something's buzzing up here. No different. This must be Gary's drum set. I think it's that rolling thing. Try to think. Why does that make noise sometimes and not always? Isn't that something? Some Sundays, yes. Some Sundays, no. I think we need a bigger stage. <laughs> At one time, you might recall, the Apostle Paul was an enemy of God's people. He had ruthlessly persecuted the Christian church. 
But God disarmed Paul on the road to Damascus. God revealed himself in indisputable power, and he figuratively took him captive. And from that time, Paul considered himself no longer to be his own, but God's property, God's possession. That he would go wherever God would lead him and do whatever God had told him. And you know what? That's what it means to be a Christian. To go where we are called to go and do what we are told to do. What it means to be a Christian is that we die to ourselves in order that we might live for God. In fact, that's how Luke speaks of the calling of Jesus' very first disciples, Luke 5.11. Forsaking all things, they followed him. Paul has surrendered all to Jesus for the sake of the gospel. Expectations of comfort, of wealth, of ease, of popularity. And he makes no apology for it. Instead, he takes this distasteful image, this humiliating imagery of being led as a war trophy, a prisoner in a triumphal procession, and he turns it on its head as if it were something to be thankful for. But we should understand that God is leading Paul to the death of Paul, figuratively, and, and eventually in Rome where he is martyred, literally, and he's okay with that. Christian, maybe your life right now is more unsettled than you want it to be. Maybe your plans are not coming to pass or your dreams are far from being fulfilled. Maybe your best efforts are coming up empty. Perhaps you're trying to be faithful, but the dead ends and the disappointments you're running into are starting to pile up. And there's a segment of onlookers or maybe even a little voice in the back of your own mind questioning your faith, telling you maybe what you're doing is is wrong, maybe speaking to you like Job's friends, saying you must have done something to deserve all this hardship. You must have done something to deserve all these struggles. Or worse, like Job's wife, why don't you just curse God and die? Have you considered that God may, in his grace and providence, be leading you in triumphal procession to the death of your idols? to the death of your demands, to the death of your will, your way, and yourself. Our faith, you know, has many paradoxes. Jesus teaches that if you want to be first, what do you have to do? Be last. If you want to be exalted, you must be humble. If you want to gain, you have to lose. If you want to live, you have to die. What do you suppose Jesus had in mind, after all, when he laid out the basic conditions of being his disciples? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Hoffman again gives us some insight into Paul's reference to this triumphal procession. He says, at the end of the parade, the Romans publicly slaughtered as a sacrifice to their gods. Those prisoners who'd been led in procession or at least a representative sample thereof, selling the rest into slavery. Though a gruesome thought to us, what better way to magnify one's victory while at the same time offering a sacrifice of gratitude to the gods than to kill publicly the leaders and the most valiant of the vanquished warriors as a final act of triumph over them. And so Paul is saying here unapologetically, I've been conquered by God. I've been stripped of myself. And I am making my way to death in order that the king who has conquered me might be glorified. 
Now, there's another aspect of this death of the self that shows up in our passage, which might also not be so obvious in the first read-through. You notice the reference to fragrance. Paul, Paul moves us from sights to smells. He goes from a, a parade to the idea of a strong odor, and we might wonder, well, how do these two things fit together? Well, they are different but related word pictures. Paul, the defeated rebel, now in service to the king unto death, and Paul, in this service, himself a sacrifice for the pleasure of the glory of God. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Wherever Paul and his fellow ministers go, the undeniable smell of the knowledge of God lingers in the air. Now, I don't watch too many movies. I don't have an, a good attention span for watching a movie. But I've certainly watched a few in my time, and one that I enjoyed many years ago, and don't don't judge me and don't write me an email, um, was Grumpy Old Men. And in that movie, the two major characters, played by Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, are lifelong and affectionate adversaries. You may recall if you saw it. They're always competing with one another. They're always trying to get it over on one another. And in one scene, Walter Matthau has outfished Jack Lemmon. And he comes home with an impressive stringer of fish, which he compares to Lemon's poultry stringer, which had two fish on it. Lemon proceeded to take his fish and toss them in the back. You maybe remember the scene of Walter Matthau's international travel-all truck. Underneath all the paper and the garbage and the refuse that's in there, he took those two fish and he threw them in the back on the floorboards and he said, go to work, baby. <laughs> and they did. As we get a little deeper into the movie, all of a sudden we have Walter Matthau driving around in his international travel hall and you can tell something's not right. He's starting to smell something and he's going, whew, whew. He doesn't know what it is, though. And he's a little bit worried that it might not be coming from inside his truck. In a moment of quiet desperation, he timidly asks the owner of the tackle shop that he visits often. He leans in and he says, tell me something, Chuck. Do I stink? <laughs> so Christian, do you stink? Do you smell like your Savior? Are you so saturated in Christ that the knowledge of him is present wherever you are, and it lingers long after you are gone. When I was in high school, there was a particular volunteer who apparently enjoyed what I would call a very strong perfume. Perhaps you have one or two people like that in your life, and you swear they bathe in this perfume. Whenever she was in the building, but more than that, long after she had walked the halls, everyone knew she had been there. Paul and his fellow ministers, through their suffering and witness, are spreading this fragrance of the knowledge of God. They are the aroma of Christ to God. Let's pull that last section apart. An aroma 
Paul, Timothy, Titus, everyone else is laying it on the line for the sake of the gospel. They are an aroma. That language probably sounds familiar to you because it's the language of, of Old Testament offerings. In Genesis 8, God smells the aroma of the burnt offering. Throughout the book of Exodus, we read many times how fragrant incense was used in the worship of God. In Leviticus 2, even the grain offering has a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In Leviticus 26, God indicts those who refuse his discipline, saying, And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. The gist is that when God is pleased with the sacrifices made by his children, it is like a pleasant smell to him. And we can relate to this idea of pleasant smells. God has made us with this sense of smell for our pleasure. So think for a second of what for you is a pleasant smell. The smell of a fresh cut field for me always brings back, and to my mind, Baptist Youth Camp. Because many years ago, the first camp of the week, senior camp, it was our job to cut, not the lawn, but the field that would eventually become a lawn. We literally had to take the tractor and go through high, high grass, hay, <laughs> and cut paths. And once the paths were cut, then for the rest of the week, I could get on that tractor and, and work to pull the whole thing down so that the next camp would come in and maintain it, and the next camp would come in and maintain it. Probably the next camp would come in, and then everybody would go home and it would grow up again. But every time I smell a fresh-cut field, not, not, not a lawn, but a field, there's a difference. Baptist Youth Camp comes to my mind, and that is a pleasant smell for me. What's a pleasant smell for you? Maybe it's the first whiff of lilacs blown about by a warm spring breeze. Or maybe it's the salt air. When the temperature finally comes up enough that you can smell the ocean again, that first time you get that, that fresh salt air. Or maybe it's fresh baked bread. Who, who isn't a sucker for fresh, fresh, say that three times fast, fresh baked bread? Or maybe you're weird like me, and the musty smell of an old church carpet. So you had to walk into those old sanctuaries, and I just, ah, oldness. <laughs> Steak on the grill? Ever been to Cleveland? Cleveland smells like meat. <laughs> Cleveland's awesome. Maybe it's your wife's favorite perfume. Maybe it's your husband's sweaty shirt. Dove Soap Beauty Bar always makes me think of my grandmother. We know pleasing, comforting smells. And the selfless labor of God's children on behalf of the gospel is a pleasing smell to God. But it's not just any pleasing aroma. It is the aroma of Christ. Jeremy Rennie has uh, written a book on eldership in which he says that because elders are shepherds, they are to be among the sheep, and because they are among the sheep, they should smell like sheep. And if you've ever done any work on a farm, then you know how the odors of what you're working with attach themselves to you. 
I guess we, we're not really agrarian, but some of you have, have done the old lobster fishing thing. You've, you've either worked on the boat or a sternman or been out there. And a lot of our dear ones who are lobster fishermen have a very special place at the front of the back of their home. And what's it for? It's so that the person coming home can take off all their clothes before they enter the house to go get cleaned up because the smell of what, they're, what they've been about and what they've been doing is all over them. And this same principle is here that because Paul is wholly the property of Jesus and because he's in fellowship with Jesus and working on behalf of Jesus, he smells like Jesus. His sacrificial actions point squarely to the gospel, squarely to the suffering that Jesus endured, draws the thoughtful to the very suffering of Christ. You see why he's not backing down from it. You see why he's not justifying himself for suffering because really what he's saying is I'm just doing what Jesus has already done I'm only extending the sufferings of Christ into history it's the same calling that's on you and I beloved and Paul is doing this why because he loves God and he loves the people that he's ministering to his motivation is the same love of God in Christ that we read about in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul, too, following Jesus is a fragrant offering and he is a sacrifice. And in Ephesians, we read that same qualifier we find in 2 Corinthians 2, the first recipient of the aroma, the first person blessed by the sacrifice is God. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to another a fragrance from life to life. Paul is being led to the death of Paul by God. And in the sacrifice of himself, in the spending of himself in service to God, which has led to much hardship and affliction, the Lord is pleased and the Lord is glorified. So his sacrifice is first, to and for God who's worthy of everything and then it is to others and while God is pleased with Paul's sacrifice we find that on an earthly plane it is met with mixed results some people will appreciate it and some people will not the smell of Jesus is for some who would reject him who revile him who dismiss him it's the smell of death they do, nothing to do with Jesus it is unpleasant but the smell of Jesus for others, for those who know him, for those who love him, for those who receive him, it is the smell of life. It is a pleasing aroma. And the interesting thing, or one of the many interesting things from this passage that I find is that no matter how Paul is perceived, whether he, whether he is received as life or death doesn't change anything. Whether he's pleasing or displeasing to others doesn't change a thing. He's simply doing what God has called him to do and being who God has called him to be. And the Lord is going to sort out the impact and the effect of his faithfulness. He is not, he will go on to say, like some, the false teachers, peddling the, God, the word of God. In other words, he will not change it. He will not dilute it. He will not corrupt it so that it would be more readily received or so that he would be more popular. He's not going to water this thing down so that you'll, you'll think better of him or so that you'd be willing maybe to come along with a watered-down version. Nothing like that at all. He's not in it for himself. He's not making money on this gospel. 
And he's not concerned about his reputation as a result of being faithful to it. Whether he is revered or received. And he's going to preach the truth among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing alike. Among those who are going to be willing to hear and those who definitely will not. Among those who will receive it, but also those who will refuse. He's just going to do what God's called him to do. And he's just going to say what God's called him to say. Let's end with a few thoughts to ponder about this passage. Notice first that Paul is thankful to God for what he's going through, right? The 14th verse, but thanks be to God. It's a common phrase of praise. Thanks be to God. Paul is thankful for what he's going through, even as he's being challenged and criticized. If you read through that book, or if you're reading through that book, you know he's up against it, but he's thankful to God. You know why? It's because he sees his place in God's parade. He belongs to God. And God then can do anything he wants to with him. Anything he pleases. So I wonder today, are you, are you thankful or are you angry about the way God is leading you? Are you thankful or are you resentful that he's leading you to the death of you? Also notice this, Paul is comfortable being conquered. We're not so comfortable with that, are we? Paul is comfortable not being the one who's doing the leading and not being the one who's calling the shots, but I'm not so sure that that, that describes us very well. He's not asserting himself, but he's striving for God's will to be done. Not his, but God's. And isn't, isn't this really part of the rub of what it means to become a Christian or to even be a joyful Christian? This idea that to follow Jesus, I have to give him my life. I have to submit me to him. And what if, and we know this on many levels, but what if in my giving myself to him, in giving him my life, what if he doesn't do with it what I want done? What if he doesn't take me where I want to go? What if he doesn't give me what I want to have? There's a fear there, isn't there? It's about our own control. But let me tell you this, friend. It is much better to be a war trophy in God's parade than a grand marshal in your own. Understand that it is much better to be a war trophy in God's parade, that you're a conquered rebel, that he's marching you through the streets, showing you off as one of his own on the way to your own sacrifice and death so that he can be glorified. It's so much better to be in that parade than to be the grand marshal of the one that you want to lead because the parade of God, which looks like death, leads to eternal life. But the parade of what seems to be right to a man, which looks like life, leads to eternal death. See that Paul is being led. Another one of those things that we can struggle with. It wasn't a coincidence that Jesus said to be a disciple, come and follow me. The old hymn reminds us that God leads his dear children along, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. You may find yourself in some tough spots in this life. You may find yourself far afield from where you think you ought to be. But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and this is where you happen to end up, do remember this. He's not lost. 
He knows the way. You may not recognize it, but he does know that. God leads us. And sometimes he leads us through, the psalmist tells us, Psalm 23, David, the, the valley of the shadow of death. And our comfort is in no way in the valley, but it is in the one who accompanies us through the valley, who leads us through the valley. So Christian, in your life today, are you following or are you leading? And don't be quick to answer that. Think about it, ponder it, and pray about it. Are you following or are you leading? And how do you know? What is the evidence? Note, too, that Paul, and I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's the major teaching here. Paul is not just being led by God, but he's being led by God to the death of Paul. If you've ever wondered why Christianity isn't that popular among the masses, I suggest it might have something to do with our marketing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words, when Christ calls a man, he bids, me, he bids him come and die, are probably not what the average person is looking for. Right? That does not make a good bumper sticker. That does not make an attractive poster. Jesus is just looking for a few good men to come and die. Not at all. You see why people put their hands up to that and say, I don't know if I want to give myself up. But this is the call to Christianity. This isn't Jesus and. This is Jesus. It isn't, it isn't my life with a little bit of, of lordship sprinkled around the edges. It is Jesus in the middle. This is the call of Christianity to make any kind of appeal that doesn't state this plainly is to peddle the word. It is to water it down. It is to make it more, more acceptable and more accessible to somebody so they can say, well, you can have both and. And God is saying consistently, no, you can't. You either belong to me or you belong to you. You either follow me or you follow you. You cannot have both of these things. It's one or the other. And if we make any appeal to discipleship based on anything less than that, we're peddling the word of God and we're, we're creating a sense of discipleship, friend, that the Bible does not recognize. Doesn't teach it, doesn't preach it, doesn't recognize it. And that's hard teaching, isn't it? But Bonhoeffer was right. When Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, he bids him, he bids her come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 76 years ago, April 9th, 1945, murdered by the Nazis. He said the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. If ever there was a man qualified to tell us about abandoning the attachments of this world, to be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He did it before and up to he was killed for the cause of Christ. In dying to himself, Paul's walk in the very footsteps of Jesus, the footsteps we are bid to walk in as well, who gave himself a ransom for many, who gave himself away. And the Apostle Paul has given himself away. And you and I are called to give ourselves away just the same. And as such, and in doing, Paul's life and our lives will point people to the life of Christ. Paul not only resembles Jesus in his selflessness, he smells 
like Jesus. His life is the aroma of Christ. That aroma which attracts some people to the gospel so that they might be saved and simultaneously repels those who want no part of God. Might we be as joyfully conquered as the Apostle Paul, as willing to be led as the Apostle Paul, as those who will gleefully make nothing of ourselves in order to make much of our great God. Let me pray and let's sing a couple songs. Father, we thank you for this message, this, this profound message that is captured in, in almost an obscure way in your word, but when we plumb it, when we dig into it, when we pull that out and try to understand what it means, Lord, it just smacks us right between the eyes. That we don't have to live up to the world's standards. In fact, we should not be using the measuring stick of this world to determine whether we are successful or whether we are worthy or whether we are even legit in the exercise of our faith. Lord, that we should be embracing those things which our nature wants us to shun. Hardship and affliction and suffering. And that should we be maligned for those things in our lives and feel a bit embarrassed or humiliated or try harder to get past them, Lord, give us the right eyes to see what's really going on. You're making us more like Jesus. And in our suffering, you're giving us a chance to point people to you and to the gospel and to the promise of salvation. We are, in fact, Lord, happy to be conquered, grateful to be vanquished, that you and your grace and mercy have, have come to us and, and, and disarmed us with your love and, and, and made us your own. So you can take us wherever you want to, you can tell us to say what we need to say and do what we need to do because we belong to you. Lord, we're thankful to be in this procession and we know it's a triumphal one. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.